Thanks for joining us this week for the Church at Starkey Hills podcast. Be sure to visit our website at starkey.church to find all the latest information and upcoming events. Good morning, church. How are we doing this morning? All right. We're from uh, Daniel today. We're going to move forward about 600 years in um, the history of the Bible, and we're going to move into the book of James. So soon after uh, the resurrection, Jesus has ascended. We, we get the book of James. And um, interestingly enough, though, Joel's been talking about these uh, young boys who are now men, right, in the book of Daniel, and they, they're experiencing many trials and having many, many opportunities where they could turn from the faith that they were taught as children and turn to something else. Every opportunity in the world taken away from home, we, we, you know, we've gone through that extensively. And the same way today, we have every opportunity with the culture around us to turn from the things that we have been taught from God's Word and turn to something else. And that's the reason that James wanted to write this uh, book, what he wrote today that we're going to go over in James 1, and that is to teach, teach believers that in the midst of trials, in the midst of temptations, that we can stand firm on God's Word, we can stand firm because of what Jesus did for us, and we know that it's true. So James is, is written by uh, James the Just. He's the brother of Jesus. Jesus had four half-brothers, and James is the oldest uh, of these brothers. And um, James was, was a leader in the early church in Jerusalem. A lot of people think that that was Peter, but it was actually James. And if we go through the book of Acts, we see, um, we see James' leadership there in Jerusalem. But he wasn't always a believer that Jesus was the Messiah. In fact, in Jesus' earthly ministry, James was found with, with the other brothers of kind of poking fun at Jesus and making fun of him that, um, that he was the Messiah, that he was a prophet. In, in John 7, we see that they're going up to this feast in Jerusalem. It's called um, the Jewish Festival of Shelters. And Jesus wasn't going to go to Jerusalem with them. And they're kind of poking fun, saying like, oh, if you're a prophet, you need to go make yourself known to people. Why are you not going to the festival with us? And I just want to stop right there for a second and say, this James was around Jesus for James' whole life, and yet he did not know who Jesus was. He was around him, but he didn't know who he was. You know, it's possible to grow up in church. It's possible to grow up in what you would call a Christian family and never know Jesus for yourself. And that's James. He didn't. He didn't know him. He wasn't able to experience Jesus and, and all of his goodness and all of the miracles he performed, everything that he was doing. But we see later on that James did come to know Jesus. We see later on that he did come to know Jesus in um, Acts 1.14. It says, All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. And his brothers there includes James. It goes on in Acts and talks about James, uh, the brother of Jesus, and how he was a leader in the early church. But this is great proof of the, just the impact that the resurrection had on some of these people who didn't believe before, but later they're sold out for the spreading of the gospel. If I ask you guys, what do you think the theme of the book of James is? I feel like a lot of answers uh, would be about faith and works. Um, a lot of times if you hear a message on James, that's the first thing that you're going to think of, that, that faith without works is dead. And it can be confusing to some people to... Um, maybe young believers, or maybe you've never really studied that text very much. Like, but I thought that faith saved me. So, 
why do I have to have these works added to? But James in this book, and we're going to see who he is actually speaking to and what he's speaking about, but Paul shows us that Jesus met the demands of the law, and because Jesus met the demands of the law through grace by faith, that's what saves us. But James shows us that our obedience to God's moral law is an indication of our faith. He teaches us how we should practically be living. Another way of saying what James teaches in his book is that genuine faith produces genuine proof of faith. Genuine faith produces genuine proof of faith. If I told you that I was a mathematician and you gave me um, a simple equation, you said, Clark, what's four times five? And I'm up here with a pen and paper trying to figure it out and I have no idea what the answer to that is. You'd say, well, he's not a mathematician. If I told you that I was a basketball player and we go out to the, to the goal out here and I shoot 100 free throws and I airball every single one of them, you'd be like, that dude's not a basketball player. He said he's a basketball player, but he's obviously not a basketball player. He's terrible. In the same way James teaches us in his book that maybe you say you have faith, but there's no indication of that in your life if these things are not the fruit that people are able to see. A quote that's attributed to Charles Spurgeon says, the grace that does not change my life will not save my soul. I'll say that again. The grace that does not change my life will not save my soul. Another way of saying that would be that grace that saves my life changes, or, or grace that saves my soul changes my life. Grace that saves my soul changes my life. Grace has a transformative property. Makes us new creations, as 2 Corinthians 5.17 says. It transforms. And what James wants to teach in his book, that if we have been transformed that there should be growth and there should be maturity that come from that transformation. There should be this sanctification process. And he's going to show us in chapter 1 how the trials that we face on a day-to-day -day basis can help lead to spiritual maturity in our life. You know, it's, it's exciting to see a baby grow. I've got a son who's, um, who's here today, back there in the back. He's two and a half months old. I don't hear him screaming yet, so that's good. Last week I, I preached in Kentucky, and like right before I started, he started screaming, so not good. But uh, it's exciting to see him grow, and it's exciting to see like when he was first smiling, and you know, he's laughing now and stuff like that. It's really, really cool, and I'm sure when we see him um, and hear him actually saying words other than kind of the mumbling that we're getting right now, that'll be really exciting to hear his first words and stuff. But there's maturity that's expected of a child. If he's a healthy boy and, and grows into a healthy man and he's still 25 years old and lives at home and the best we can get out of him is mama or dada, it's not going to be exciting to see anymore. There's a level of maturity that is expected from him past this like inarticulate uttering of words. Growth is expected. And in the same way in our faith, our salvation is just the beginning of it. God wants to use every single one of us who call him Lord to be great tools who can be used by God. You know, we, we have kids who um, are leaving the church in crazy, crazy high numbers. And um, especially when they go to college, you know, if you talk to the Jeremy and Rachel here who do college ministry and they go on the campus and stuff, but a big part of it, studies show, is, is the middle group of kids, you've got three parts, you've got the kids, whose parents were super involved in the church, had the kids there all the time, they're more likely to stay. You've got kids who weren't involved at all, and basically a pastor, a youth pastor, someone took this kid under their wing and taught them and discipled them. That kid's more likely to stay. The group that leaves the most is this big group in the middle 
who they might attend church some, they grew up in a church or a Christian home, but it, it was never like the life that they saw. It was never real living faith. It was they attended a place a couple times a month, a couple Wednesdays a month, something like that. And, and I think that it's an indictment on the American church and on families that we have 18, 19-year-old kids have absolutely no idea what they should believe. Have no idea what they should believe. 1 Corinthians 3.2 says, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you are not ready. Should advance beyond that milk, right, to solid food. Some meat and potatoes in our life. Ephesians 4.14 says, So that you may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, in deceitful schemes. So God has called us to make disciples, but to make a disciple, you have to be a disciple. To teach someone how to follow Jesus, you yourself need to be following Jesus. And the first thing that James is going to show us, what we see in Daniel, that is, if we have this real faith that when we face these trials, when they come, we're going to respond differently than how the world responds to that. So go ahead and open your Bibles to James 1, verse 1. And this is where we're going, to, we're going to begin today, and we're just going to cover four verses, verses 1 through 4, and then verse 12. But we're going to start in verse 1. And it says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Stop right there. The first thing I want us to notice is how the humility, how the faith in James' life has changed him. He could have said James, the half-brother of Jesus, to start this book, right? That's who he is. That's who he was. Mary was his mother too. But he considers himself now a servant of that half-brother. He calls Jesus Lord. That's who he refers to him as. And then who is he writing to? It says to the 12 tribes in dispersion greetings. The 12 tribes. So he's writing to these Jewish people, specifically Jewish believers in Christ. Now, Jews have been scattered throughout world history. And they had been scattered, the tribes have been scattered at this point, and even more so now Jewish Christians throughout the land of Samaria and Judea and Asia Minor, like all around, they've been scattered because of the persecution that they're facing, because of they're being thrown into prison, they're facing death, they're facing a lot of persecution. And he's going to write this letter to them, and he's going to um, teach them through this letter that even though you might be facing this kind of persecution, this gospel message is something that's worth fighting for, and it's something that's even worth dying for. In Acts 8, 4, it says, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So just because they've been scattered doesn't mean they're not still preaching the word. In fact, God is using this as a tool to reach more people, to reach people throughout Asia Minor and throughout Europe eventually, okay? So this is God's plan for the spread of the gospel. You know, he's going to tell these people not to give up, not to quit at the first sign of adversity. And what do we do a lot of times when we face small amounts of adversity because of our faith? You know, it's like, okay, maybe I shouldn't speak about Jesus in that context, at that place. Maybe I shouldn't talk about my faith to that person because it seems like they don't respond too well to that. Maybe I'll offend them. You know, as a student, it's like maybe everyone else is doing this. It seems like it's not that bad, so maybe I'll step in and I'll do that because that's what everyone else is doing. Or maybe I won't do that because it doesn't seem cool and everyone else is, is not doing that. I, I don't want to tell someone that they're wrong about what they believe because 
they might not want to be friends with me anymore. I might lose a friend because of that if I speak truth into that person. And what we do is we cower down really quickly when faced with adversity, and we do it and call it love. We cower down when we're faced with adversity, and we say that it's love, that we're doing it because you know we love them, we, we don't want to riff there, or whatever, but there's no true love in doing that. Because what we're really doing is doing that out of fear. And we know that God's Word says that perfect love casts out fear and that God is love. So that's not from God. I just want to say that. I just want to make that clear. So, so he's writing to Jewish believers throughout the land. And this is the first thing that he wants to teach them. The first thing he wants to teach them, number one, is to rejoice in the trials. Rejoice in the trials. Verse 2, it says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. No matter where you're at as a believer or as a non-believer, as anybody, right? You're, you're going to face trials in life. And the Bible teaches us that we should rejoice in them. You know, if you think that as a believer, what that means is the trials and the tests and the things that come in your life, the temptations are just going to go away, then you're kind of missing the whole point of the gospel. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If everything he's saying in this life is all there is, then we're, we're most to be pitied. Look, he's not saying that because all the believers look like they were living really good in the eyes of the world that was around them. He's saying it because of the tough things that they were facing, the trials that they were facing, that they were going through. He's saying if this is it, we're to be pitied. But then he goes on and he teaches us how Christ has risen and the hope that we have is in something greater. We can rejoice because of the eternal hope that awaits us. You know, the... The word joy here in verse 2, it's, it's not the same thing as happiness. He's not saying if something bad is happening to you or to someone in your family that you need to be smiling ear to ear and just be happy about that rough situation happening. No, um, joy is the outward expression of the work of the Holy Spirit within a believer. Joy is the outward expression of the work of the Holy Spirit within a believer. We have this joyful nature that the Spirit of God gives us as born-again believers, and we know that the one who is in complete control in the midst of good times, in the midst of bad times, in the midst of trials, is the creator of the heavens and the earth. And we know the eternal promises that he has for his children, so we can rejoice in that. You know, we're going to face trials in our families, um, as individuals, in our jobs, as, as a church, as a nation. That's a given. It's going to happen. And this is, this is me speaking something that I've noticed from travel and from people that I talk to all the time that um, lead churches in some places where they're not even really allowed to talk about it. And, and that is that we face so few major trials, at least in my lifetime, probably your lifetimes, here as a church in America, that we're scared to death to face a trial. We don't want a trial to come. We're scared to death because we've embraced these lives of comfort and we can't imagine that way of life possibly being taken from us. Let me explain this a little more. This is the fourth election that I've been able to vote in, okay? And every single one of them, I'm told, this is the most important election of my lifetime. And perhaps it's the case this time. Perhaps it was the case in 2016, 2012, going back, et cetera, right? Okay, perhaps that is the case, but I'll just say this when it comes to the politics, because we just had an election, it's like we can't rejoice in trials because we're so scared that if 
a political candidate that we support isn't elected, everything's going to be terrible then. If the party that we support isn't in power, everything is going to be terrible. And I'm not saying not to support a political candidate that shares your values, not to support that party, uh, not to go vote. I'm not saying that at all, but I'm saying don't make it an idol. Have some perspective. Have some perspective. Don't let your hope or your joy be determined by a politician. Okay, find your peace, find your hope, find your joy in Christ Jesus and in being found in Him. You know, Joel said something a few weeks back, and I, I jotted it down that I thought was excellent. I said, Satan doesn't care who you worship as long as it's not the one who created you. Satan doesn't care who you worship as long as it's not the one who created you. And, and when it says worship, if you are giving, if you're devoting your time, your energy, your heart is in something other before Christ, he's good with that. He's good with that. Whether it be sports, a politician, anything, Satan's good with that because that's where your time and energy is being spent. You know, there's people that I know in countries around the world that have never in their lifetime experienced one ounce of the religious liberty that we have here on a daily basis. And something that I've found in those, those godly brothers and sisters is that they still are able to live godly lives. They're still able to follow Jesus. They still raise godly families, godly children, and they find ways to fellowship together, to spend time together. Look, they were being told don't meet together in church way before anybody heard of COVID-19, okay? And they were still finding ways to fellowship and meet together. And they're still full of joy because they understand what God's Word says and they embrace what God's Word says. In 2 Timothy 3.12, it says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And then we see in John 15.18, in the words of Jesus, He says, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. We spend so much time trying to make sure that everything in the world, that everyone in the world loves us. That no one has anything, you know, that, that no one dislikes me, that no one dislikes the church. But Jesus tells us, the world hated me, it'll hate you too. The world hated me, it'll hate you too. Look, we've been extremely blessed as a church in America. I believe that, but, but the truth still remains. And the truth is, from John 3, that people love darkness and that people remain in the darkness because if they come into the light, the sin that they have will be exposed. So people choose to remain in the darkness. And as long as this is the case, we're going to have trials for sure as a church against the ways of culture if we're going to stand for truth and what's right. And James wants to start his book off by helping these believers remember that the trials that we face come with the territory of knowing who Jesus is. You know, they're facing real trials, people trying to kill them, people trying to throw them in prison. They weren't called to live lives of comfort. John uh, 15, 20, Jesus says that a servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. You know, as believers, our trials do not go away. If anything, we see them increase throughout the New Testament. But what it does, what trials do, is they make us more mature. They make us more mature and they help us grow in our faith when we come through them. And they help us grow in our faith in the midst of them, which should bring rejoicing in our life, should bring growth in our life. And that leads to the second point. And the second point is to grow in the trials. Grow in the trials. James 1 verses 3 and 4. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect 
and complete, lacking in nothing. Look, the testing of our faith that makes us stronger, more steadfast. Other translations you guys uh, might have say perseverance, might say endurance. I like the word endurance. Today's message is enduring life's trials. I like the word endurance. I ask the youth, we're going through James right now, actually, and I ask the youth on James 1, um, what do you think of when you think of endurance? And you could probably guess what the answers look like. Most of them had to do with sports. That's probably what I would think also. Okay, most of them had to do with sports. And I think about if you ever watch like a good sports movie or you watch, or um, maybe you like me, you like college football and uh, Tom Rinaldi, he always has these specials where he talks about someone, something terrible that happened to him. It just seems like really sad. And then it builds up to this climax of now this person's a great athlete or they're on a champion team or something like that. And that's what makes sports movies great is the adversity that they face and able to endure through that. You know, endurance in sports is something that, that um, in my life that I've noticed that there's a huge lack of right now. Um, when I was younger, probably 10 years ago, when I'm in college, when I play basketball and stuff, it was a lot different. And you might say, well, yeah, of course, that's because you're getting older. That's because you're 31 years old. Um, but there's something else. And that's something else is because I don't train how I used to. Um, when, when I was playing basketball about a month and a half or so ago, up at FBA where I helped coach, I drove in the lane and I stepped on a guy's foot and sprained my ankle pretty bad. And uh, it was swollen up for a good time. And I was noticing how much longer it was taken for it to heal than it would have probably 10 years ago. And I was telling Kelsey, like, I'm so much slower than I used to be. I'm not quick. I can't move the way I used to. It's really frustrating. And I played yesterday for the first time um, in like six weeks. But a big part of that is because I don't have the endurance. I noticed probably for the first time last year at 30 years old, it was like I turned 30 and it happened, where I'm running up and down a basketball court and I'm sucking wind. I'd never really done that before. I always could just run all day. <laughs> and so, <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> and so, um, I don't have the same endurance that I once had. Don't have the same endurance that I once had. Endurance is the ability that we have to persevere through increasing levels of testing or suffering. So when it comes to our faith, you know, we don't just endure these trials when they come because we decide in the moment, oh man, a trial's coming, you know, I need endurance. It builds up over time because we've been in God's word, we've spent time with God, we've, we spend time with him in prayer, we spend time sharing our testimony, sharing the gospel with other people, and then when trials come, we know what we believe and we're, we're able to rejoice in that and to grow in that. You know, in verse 4, if we go back, um, it, it says that God wants us to develop this perseverance, this steadfastness, this endurance, and the trials that will make us strong in our faith. And it says perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing. I think this verse gets misinterpreted, misconstrued a lot of times. What he's really saying in this is that immaturity and incompletion are not acceptable long-term long states for a Christian disciple. Immaturity and incompletion are not acceptable long-term states for a Christian disciple. If you've read any of Nick Ripkin's stuff, he did it in Sanity of God, Insanity of Obedience, there's a movie about it and stuff, some really cool stuff, but he says this in, the, in that book, he says, 90% um, born in the church, raised in the church, saved in the church, married and buried in the church, will never share Jesus with another person. Now, I'm not sure where he came up with that 90%, sounds pretty good to me, and uh, I feel like that I've seen that, that I've seen that, in my own life. And I was that person 
for a long time. And it would demonstrate, it demonstrates a lack of salvation, right? If you go on sinning, and, and I said this, it's a sin of omission, sin of omission, something you're supposed to do that you don't do, to omit the great commission from our lives. 1 John 3, 6 teaches us that no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. So if we know Jesus, we don't continue on in this repetitive type sin. We grow in our faith. But being a follower of Jesus isn't about just not living in sin. You know, if you ask students and the things that students want to ask you, it's all about what can I do that's not sin? You know, how can I be a Christian? I need to not do this, not do this, not do this. And I try to explain that, like, it's more about who you know, who you love, the faith you have, and what you do do. John 15, 5 says, I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him. He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Jesus says that we'll be known by our fruit. We'll be known by how we respond when we're experiencing trials. If you go back to the beginning of verse 3, there's a word testing here. It's the word testing in verse 3, the testing of your faith. Okay, The, the word testing here was something that was used um, to talk about uh, silversmiths. And what the silversmiths would do is they'd put a bunch of silver in a pot and they'd heat it and the impurities would come to the top and they'd scoop it off and they'd keep doing it over and over and over until they could see their reflection in that silver. They did it until they could see their reflection. And the trials in life, the trials, the testing, the things that we're facing is because God wants to look down at us and see his reflection. He wants us to become more and more and more like Jesus in this process called sanctification. Jesus wants us to be a reflection of Him. He wants us to use the trials that we face to become more like Him. God is not so much concerned about are you happy every day, but He does want to make you holy. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16 says, But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Look, we should want to become more like Christ. I think as a church, as believers, you would agree with that. I should want to become more like Christ. And trials are something that help us do that. You know, trials are necessary in becoming like Him. Jesus faced trials that are unimaginable to us. Romans 8, 17, Paul says, Now if we are children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. So we share in His glory. We also will share in His sufferings. I've heard it described by people as baking a cake, that you have some things that taste okay, some things that aren't very good. You'd never want to eat on their own, but you put it together, and if it's, a, if it's how it's supposed to be, then hopefully that cake tastes perfect when it comes out. And God wants to use all the junk, all the trials, all the testing in our life to make us more like Him, to be a reflection of Christ to others. This leads to the third and final point, and that point is to stand firm in the trials. Stand firm in the trials. You know, sometimes that's, that's all you can do. Stand firm, stand where you're at. Really, James presents this, and it's kind of going in opposite order, because if you stand firm, then you'll experience growth. If you experience growth, then you'll experience joy. And if we stand firm in the trials, like Joel talked about, drawing a sand, not compromising, then there's a promise there. And that promise comes in James 1.12. It says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. 
For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. You know, those who make it through the test here, it says, are the ones that love God. The ones who come out the other side stronger, who grow. First you stand firm, you grow, you rejoice in the trials. Those are the ones who know and who love God. It says blessed in this verse. And, and blessed here in this verse, it reflects an understanding that a person who walks in the path set by the Lord sees his circumstances and the, ter- and the terms of the eternal hope that awaits him. So within the context, his, his troubles at the time seem fleeting. No, he's blessed because of the hope that awaits in Jesus. That's what awaits the one who loves him, the one who loves God. John 14, 21 teaches us something else about the person that loves God. Jesus said, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest manifest myself to him. You know, it might be easy to love God when everything seems to be going well, when everything seems to be going how you planned, how you wanted for it to go. But, but what about when you are facing suffering and trials? What about you know, a year like 2020 that we've never seen before in our lifetimes that just goes off the walls crazy? Can you be trusted to obey him then? Are you trustworthy to God in those kind of moments when you're experiencing these kind of trials in your life? You know, not long ago, we talked about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in here. And um, a trial, a test that they faced. And they could have fallen into temptation very easily because of just all the external things that they were facing. There's a 90-foot statue built. King tells them, you bow down to the statue or you're getting thrown into the fire. They're far away from home. But what happens? What happens is that their genuine faith stands out. They have genuine proof of faith. And it stands out in the world that they're in. They could have responded to that king, right? They they could have said, okay, we'll bow and just gone along with everyone else. That's one response that everyone else jumps off a bridge, so I will too. Another response is kind of, and probably the more popular response is just to blend in with the culture around you, to just blend in with the culture. They could have said, well, we'll bow down but we're still going to pray to our God, but they won't even know, you know what we're doing. We're bowing down praying to our God, and, and, and you know, they won't even know it. And, and that would be more like blending into the culture. And I, I think that's what we do a lot of times with how we talk, the movies we watch, the things that we want to talk to people about. It's like to blend into our culture. That's something that we feel like we get closer to them. If we look more like the world, then somehow we'll be able to share Jesus with them better. In society, we've been taught this critical thinking problem solving, and, and it's really good for a lot of things. It's like if you have one option over here, option A and option B over here, you're going to take the path, hopefully, that's going to um, be better for you, better for your family, whatever that is. And it's like, okay, over here, in the case of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we have what looks like surely going to be death for us. And over here, we have what looks like is going to be life, that he's going to spare our lives as long as we bow down. So you would say, go that way. But the thing you find from that story is that you can't judge obedience by outcome when God's word speaks to it, okay? So you can't say, well, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do this when God's word, when God has already told you, no, you got to do this. Instead, how do they respond? You guys, if you were here, you remember, they say that, okay, we are 
not going to bow down. We're going to follow our God, and he's going to save us. But even if he doesn't save us, we're still not going to bow down to that statue. We're still going to make it stronger through this trial. We're not going to bow down to that statue. That's how we have to respond. We have to respond no matter what. Nothing will turn my heart from you, God. I'm going to stand firm in that trial because I love you more than sin. And I understand that Jesus has made it through a hotter furnace, through a stiffer trial that I'm ever going to face. I understand what Jesus has done for me, and because of that, I'm going to stand firm when the trials come. You know, we have to say, you know, I believe that God will help me get this job, but even if he doesn't, I believe that he still provides. I believe that God will heal this person, but even if he doesn't, I'll still take peace and joy in knowing him. I believe that God will give me a spouse even if he doesn't. I believe that he is faithful. Jesus teaches us a, a parable, and I'm not going to go through the whole parable. I'm going to look at one part of the parable. It's a popular parable that he teaches from, and it's a, a parable of the sower. It's about seeds. And I want to look at one type of soil, and that type of soil I want to look at is the rocky ground. The rocky ground. We see in Matthew 13, 5 and 6, Jesus says, Other seeds fell on the rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. The disciples, you know, they always ask Jesus, why are you speaking in the parables? Uh, please explain it to us. And so he does. He explains to them. And when he's asked to explain in verse 20 and 21, he says, As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. This seed that fell on the rocky ground or the soil, this is like the person that experienced tests in their life and they immediately fall away from what God's word says. It was like, well, you know, I thought I believed in that, but I don't know why this is happening to me. If we go back to verse 12, if we go back to verse 12, um, we see that it's the one who has stood the test that receives the crown which God has promised to those who love Him. You know, those who persevere and stand firm on their faith when the trials come, they're going to grow closer to Jesus. You're going to look more like Jesus and receive this crown of life that's promised to who again? To those who love God. And true faith is synonymous always with loving God and knowing God. In John 17, 3, it says that it's eternal life to know God and Jesus who he sent. Let me see that scary passage, right, in Matthew 7, where Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. But when you know Jesus, when you know Jesus, when you know the hope that is in him, the current troubles start to seem fleeting when you consider what eternity has in store. Paul says it like this in Romans 8, 18. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. I want to close today with a quote from a British missionary to China named Hudson Taylor. And he really echoes Paul out of 2 Corinthians 12 in this quote. What he says is, I'm no longer anxious about anything as I realize that he is able to carry out his will for me. It does not matter where he places me or how. That is for him to consider, not me. 
for in the easiest positions he will give me grace, and in the most difficult ones, his grace is sufficient. Is his grace sufficient for you? Paul says something similar when he quotes Jesus, and Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. He could be high, he could be low, he could be in danger, everything going well, and God's grace is sufficient for him no matter what. Is his grace sufficient for you? Can you rejoice because of his grace when you face trials? Can you grow closer to Jesus? Can you grow in your faith when you face trials? Can you stand firm and not conform to the ways of the world when you face trials? If His grace is sufficient for you, then you surely can. So is His grace sufficient for you? Now we receive that grace. God gives that grace generously to those who believe, to those who place their faith in Him. He doesn't have to. He doesn't have to give the grace to people who place their faith in Him and what He's done for them, but He chooses to out of His own goodness. If everyone could, just go ahead and bow your heads and close your eyes, please. Maybe you have received God's grace. Maybe, maybe you have. But maybe this year, maybe a lot of stuff, there's things going on in your life, and you feel like it's not sufficient, that you're looking for other things. You're looking for other coping mechanisms, whether it be drugs or alcohol or, or pornography or gossip or laziness or just anything to fill your life with because of the way this year has gone or because of how your life's going. But, but you know that you've had a relationship with Jesus, but it feels like that His grace isn't sufficient for you. Today, I just encourage you to repent of that and to thank God for the grace that He has given you freely and to turn back to Him. You know, maybe you've never received that grace. You're not sure if, if you have. Maybe you're like James who walked with Jesus, who lived with Jesus, but he didn't truly know Him. Maybe that's who you are. And, and you're missing all this that God has in store like James was early in his life. He only got to be there with Jesus for, uh, let's say, about 40 days when he actually believed. You know, maybe you haven't received that grace. Maybe you don't really know him. I want to pray for everyone. I want to pray for those who are in Christ. And I want to pray for those who, who maybe you just don't know. You don't know if you know this. Lord God, I pray that you would just be with this body, Lord, with this congregation. I thank you so much, God, for your grace, Lord, that saves. And I thank you, God, that your grace is sufficient for us in the trials and in the testing in life that we face. And if there's believers, if there's children in here today, Lord, where they feel like that grace isn't sufficient, I pray that they would repent, Lord, and that they would turn back to you, Lord, because you've given them everything they need to rejoice, to grow, to stand firm in the trials of life that they face. And if there's someone in here, God, that doesn't know you, that's never received that grace, I want to pray for them too. And I ask God that you would just tug on their hearts, that you would just show them, Lord, that you are enough. Lord God, not only are you enough, you are everything. You are Lord, you are Savior, and you are King. And Lord God, I pray that if there's someone here and they believe that right now and they've never trusted in you fully, God, I pray that they would pray something like this. 
Jesus, I believe that you were the Son of God. I believe that you lived a perfect life that I could never live. I believe that you died a death, a brutal death on the cross in my place. I believe that you were buried and that on the third day you rose again and that you live forever in glory. And God, today I repent of my sin. I acknowledge, God, that my ways are not right. And I humbly confess that I am a sinner and I want to turn from my sinful ways and follow you, Jesus. Lord God, give me your Holy Spirit. Give me your grace. I pray that from here on out that you are Lord and Savior of my life. And I thank you, God, for being faithful and for saving me. Lord God, I thank you so much again for the opportunity to be here on this Sunday morning. I thank you for the fellowship that we're able to freely do, God. I thank you for the worship that we're able to experience, God, and the communities that we're able to live and exist in. Lord God, we praise you so much, Lord, and we thank you, God, for the trials in life because we know that enduring life's trials bring us closer to you, Jesus, and make us more like who you want us to be so that we can reflect your glorious son, God, Jesus, more. Lord God, just go with us from here throughout this day, throughout this week, God. Let us shine your light to a world that is stuck in darkness. We love you, God. We give you praise and glory for everything. It's in Jesus' name, amen. We hope that God spoke to you through this message. If you enjoyed the message, be sure to subscribe to our weekly podcast and visit our website at sturkey.church to find all the latest information and upcoming events. Be sure to join us again next week. Until then, may God bless you.